Hi, you are listening to the Conflict and Development in Africa podcast. This podcast is for policymakers, governments, researchers, students, businesses, and anyone that is interested in conflict and development issues in Africa. On this podcast, we hear from experts from across Africa and the world. Your host, Dr. Michael Wangpa, will ask the questions you would want answers to. Michael Wangpa has an extensive experience spanning over a decade studying, researching, writing and consulting on conflict and development issues in Africa. to another episode of the Conflict uh, and Development in Africa podcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Michael Wampa. Uh, today, we are going to be exploring peacekeeping, peace operation, and peace stabilization mission in Africa. Uh, I am joined today by an important guest, um, Professor Shedrick de Conin. Uh, professor Conin is uh, a research professor in the at the in the research professor in the research group on peace conflict and development at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, where he also co-coordinates uh, the Institute Center for UN and Global Governance. He's also senior advisor at the African Center for the Con- Constructive Resolution of Disputes Accord, uh, South Africa, where he has been since 1997. Uh, Shadrick has uh, 30 years of experience in research, policy advice, training, and education in the areas of conflict resolution, peacekeeping, peace building, and peace and conflict studies. Uh, Shadrick, you, you, you've had, um, uh, you have an impressive um, resume and you've done quite uh, a, a lot, a longstanding um, uh, research and experience in, in, in this field. Uh, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Michael. It's great to join you, and I, I look forward to our discussion. Yeah, great, brilliant. Uh, I, I was going to ask you, you know, because you have different uh, concepts. I wanted to start from that, but I think the best place to start before I ask you to to say what the difference between peacekeeping and peace building and what implications uh, these concepts have, is to say in the last, um, since the millennium, since 2000, we have seen an increasing number of you know, civil wars, proliferation of insurgencies in you know, terrorist organizations in, in the continent in Africa. Uh, so it seems that Africa seems to be the epicenter of, of conflict. Uh, why do you think, uh, can you comment on this generous state and, and what are those factors that have given rise to this situation in, in Africa? Why do we have a pre prevalence of you know violent conflicts and civil wars in Africa? Let's I think that's the that's the best uh, best place to, to begin this conversation. Mm, mm. 
Well, Michael, I think there's a very many reasons for that. Uh, you know, historically, you can just go back to to slavery, colonialism, uh, and and the the inequality in terms of the global system, um, and what that has uh, the, the the situation that has or the condition that has created for Africa in terms of. Uh, kind of built-in inequality with uh, with the rest of the world, especially the developed world, um, and a continuation of exploitation um, and unequal power relationships. Uh, you know, since since those days, since in the post-colonial period up to today, you can call it new colonialism or new imperialism, whatever you would like to call it. But there is a a continuous uh, inequality in the relationship between Africa and the rest of the world. There is, uh, Africa remains on the periphery of, of decision-making and of economic, international economic and financial system. And that, of course, perpetuates um, a number of, of conditions uh, that um, make Africa more success, uh, you know, I would say more exposed to um, various stresses and pressures which can contribute to, to conflict, including, um, you know, on the one hand, uh, external factors ranging from, from the effects of climate change to natural resource exploitation and other such factors, but also to a continuation or a um, factors related to weak governance uh, in in Africa, uh, corruption of, of, of leadership. And if we go more into the governance dimension, you know, I would say we can see a, a very weak and shallow form of democracy that we've had on the continent. Um, and a lot of the frustration we see with the recent coups, for instance, in West Africa and so on, I think is essentially frustration of, of people with the the, the kind of empty um, delivery, the lack of delivery of the, 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 the type of democratic systems we've, we've had where regardless of which government comes into power from an ordinary person's perspective, you know, the, the same elites remain in power and they seem to be able to, you know, enrich themselves and exploit themselves and the, the ordinary lives of people are not changing. Uh, and of course, that frustration then leads to inability to manage things like uh, organized crime or con mm -hmm. collusion also very often between political elites and, and organized crime. And so there's so very many factors that contribute to 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 the global south in general and, and Africa in particular, then being very vulnerable to managing uh, conflicts or to in some cases, you know, uh, conflict coming about as a result of many of these factors and how people choose to respond to them. Mm, amazing. Very, very interesting. Very interesting. I, I, I like the fact how you combine uh, the external uh, influences with, with also the, you know, local influences. And, and they seem to be very, very, uh, with like two sides of the same coin. But what, one of the things I've seen here is, this problem seems to be fundamental problems. They seem to be like structural problems. So if, if we look at it that way, from that angle, 
how does peace operations or peacekeeping, how, how does it respond to that structural needs? Does it respond to, how does it deal with these fundamental structural needs? What is the scope of peacekeeping? Is it just about de dealing with these symptoms or does it really deal with these structural needs? So if you talk about the structural dimensions, I mean, that really brings me then to, to follow on what I said earlier. And if we look at specific contexts like Mozambique, where we have the insurgency in the north of Mozambique and Cabo Delgado, or if we look in uh, the case of, for instance, in the Sahel and places like the Mali or, or Nigeria, if we look at the north uh, Lake Chad Basin, problem with Boko Haram, I'm mentioning all of these because these are also places where peace operations are deployed. And so I'll come back to the peace operations dimension in a moment. But first, structurally, what we can see in all mm. of these contexts is a, a, um, a tension and an inequality between the center and the periphery. So the center is typically mm. where you have the, the main uh, political and economic activity of the country dominated by a certain set mm. of elites. And then you typically have the on the periphery, and especially in all of these cases that I've mentioned, the kind of north-south tension. Um, mm. Interestingly, in all three of these cases, the, the south is more Christian. Um, in the case of mm. West Africa, more coastal and therefore, you know, exposed to the West and Western trade and Western missionaries. And the north mm. um, is, is more... Islamic and and linked to the to the the, the ocean of the Sahel, if you like, and and interestingly mm. in Mozambique we have that same religious distinction where in the north um, the people from Cabo Delgado or some of the people in Cabo Delgado that are are linked more to the to to Islamic community are in a sense more linked up with the Indian Ocean community, the Indian Ocean Swahili speaking community mm. and even economically and culturally than they are with, let's say, Maputo and, and, and the Christian Portuguese South. So that mm. center periphery where the people in the North have been for generations, for decades, uh, for centuries, have been excluded from the, the main power, economic, political power in the center, has built up mm enormous grievances over time. And of course, there have been various attempts to manage and to respond to that. But the current, the current way in which that frustration is manifesting is through uh, Islamic insurgencies or Islamic um, uh, fundamentalist extremist groups that mobilize people based on that frustration. And some people turn to those groups because they seem to offer mm -hmm. an, a challenge and an alternative way of responding to this uh, inequality in the relationship with the center with a, because you know various previous attempts have been very unsuccessful in changing their condition and so they hope that this this new approach could change their condition so that first of all tells us that the that the conflict goes much deeper than it's not about just dealing with terrorism or with violent extremism mm. but in order to manage those and address those conflicts and transform those conflicts, we need to address that underlying drivers of conflict, which is the, the marginalization, the lack of economic opportunity, the lack of uh, or the distance between the rest of the country and the periphery. Mm. So connecting those areas up with the, with the center 
and um, uh, providing the kind of economic and political opportunities that the people in, in, in those areas are seeking. So in that context, what then is the role of a peace operation like the, the SADC mission in, in Cabo Delgado mm -hmm. or the UN mission or many of the others, including the G5 Sahel Force mm -hmm. in Mali or the multinational joint task force in Cabo Delgado? Uh, uh, sorry, mm. in 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 Lake in the Lake Chad Basin in the north the of Chad, Nigeria, yeah. the Chad and the Lake Chad Basin Commission area. Mm. All of them, I would say, their core contribution is to create uh, stability and security, um, mm. not as a way of a final solution to the problem, but mm. as a first step towards trying to resolve the situation by creating mm -hmm. more security and stability, which should provide the space that can then be used for conflict resolution, for peace building, for addressing these drivers of the conflict, right? For finding mm -hmm. political settlements and solutions, for improving mm -hmm. governance and, and basic services. Mm -hmm. So basically mm -hmm. they, they deal with the symptoms, they they, re they relieve those symptoms temporarily in order to create the space, a more safe space for the governments of the day and, and other partners and other actors, local, national, international, uh, active in that space to try and improve the situation and address the, the drivers of the conflict. Hmm. Interesting. So I, I think that there are two things that, that I see from here. You quite touch into the nexus between conflict and development and the argument in that debate about do we does development follows security? Do we need to first secure and then development, or should we develop and development then creating a secured place? So that I think that that debate is still not one that has been um that that has been answered. That question hasn't been really, really answered. But then again, if we look at um, when you say stability and then you say creating first step for other people. So are you saying, my understanding, my thinking from that statement is that it's like a military approach. So the military needs to maybe get involved in a place like maybe in the Lake Chad where you have Boko Haram and other insurgencies and create that situation. So is the military a part of that peace operation or is it different from that peace operation should if we're talking about peace should, should the military what what is that does that not create some kind of like paradox or some kind of complexity whereas uh, we're having a military you know elements in a peace uh, peacekeeping framework how, how has that uh, dynamic how do you balance that dynamic yeah these are all very important questions and considerations. I mean, first of all, I would say that they, they, you, you cannot, in a uh, predetermined way, say that security should come first and development come after. Um, that kind of sequencing um, is, uh, you know, is maybe very um, superficial because they, they go very much hand in hand. I mean, the way I described it uh, in your previous question is that the, the essential role of these peace operations are to create stability for 
others to do development and governance. But that doesn't mean that the one has to come before the other in a kind of a black and white, uh, you know, chronological mm -hmm. order. There is, of course, governance and development underway, even during the, the conflict. And there's some form of security underway during the conflict. So the, the, they are much more interwoven and interconnected um, mm. uh, than, than that uh, explanation um, maybe leads, leads one to think. So certainly we are talking about a, a whole of society integrated approach because the, the core problem is, as I mentioned in the beginning, this, uh, this inequality, poverty, exclusion, uh, the economic and, and political dimensions of it. And the security, the insecurity dimension of it is just a, a expression of frustration, a, a symptom of that underlying tension. Right? So responding to violence with violence is usually not a good, good idea, because right? you're, you're adding fuel to the fire. And we know that, mm -hmm. that very often, unfortunately, uh, military responses are, is a very blunt instrument um so typically if if a a, a a armed force of a country or an international force even responds to to um, in a kind of insurgency in a given area they very often yeah. act harshly and ha with hard in hard-handed ways to the whole population because it's very difficult for those forces to make the distinction between you know, who are the actual individuals who are part of a more extremist group versus those who are living in the community. And of course, there's also a degree of, of, of interaction and, and an expectation or a suspicion that that community in large is sympathetic to that group and providing support to them and so on. So you can often find, uh, you know, extreme violence also perpetrated by the armed forces that are reacting to the insurgency. I mean, I think it's documented in places like Mali that, that more, more civilians are harmed and dies from armed forces action in certain areas than, mm. than from the action by the violent extremists. Right? So yes, uh, a military response could, is, is typically a very difficult and sensitive response and, and could easily cause harm and could easily make the situation also worse. Uh, another way to think of it is that very often these military responses are not sufficient to, um, let's say, neutralize or, 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 or significantly disrupt the armed groups. And then, in mm. effect, you know, if you are putting the armed group under pressure by, through instance, a, some form of peace operation, which forces them to change their tactics, to learn from your behavior as the peace operation, to try and find alternative ways of responding to the way you are trying to, to disrupt their behavior. What you are then doing in a sense is, is stimulating them to become better. You know, you are, mm. you are making, you're not destroying them, but you're making it more difficult for them in a way that they need to then respond and improve their tactics and so on. So, so a, a, a reaction by armed forces that are not sufficient to significantly disrupt those insurgents can easily actually stimulate them to, to, to become stronger. And we see, often see this over time, that actually the armed groups become stronger and, and become more complex and refined in their behavior 
as a result of, mm. of you know armed armed actors trying to suppress them rather than the opposite. Mm. So <clears throat> the most the I think it's the most important lesson here for us is that peace operations are are on or, or armed even if it's national action by armed forces is never and can never be an end in and of themselves. They can mm. only be part of a larger political process. So if there's a if the emphasis is on resolving the tension and dealing with those inequalities and aiming to provide and, and develop a political project that can result in resolving those conflicts. In that context, an, a peace operations can help to create some form of stability, which can help that larger process that also have developmental dimensions and governance dimensions and so on. But unfortunately, often we see that the peace operations are deployed as a fig leaf for a response, right? So the government in question um, or international actors deploy such an operation as a, as a way of saying, oh, look, we're doing something. But it's not really a serious political project to resolve the conflict because often those elites in the center do not necessarily mm. really want to address that inequality and that marginalization mm. with the periphery. Mm -hmm. they, would, they would prefer to frame that as not really an internal problem, but a problem caused by some form of you know, international terrorism. Mm -hmm. And they would prefer international partners to help them to defeat those terrorists rather than deal with the real drivers of the conflict. Mm -hmm. And this leads to something which in my research I call the stabilization dilemma. And what this dilemma reflects is that the more successful you are as a peace operation to create stability, the less incentive there is for the political elites to find the kind of political settlements needed to end the conflict, right? So if you are the SADC mission in Mozambique or if you are the UN mission in Mali, your, you, your end state is for, to create enough stability for the government to then enter into a process let's say, into a political, develop a political project to resolve the conflict, address the inequality, etc., improve governance, right? But the more successful you are as a UN mission in Mali or the SADC mission in Mozambique in creating stability, the more the political elites at the centre feel, oh, the problem is dealt with. There's no mm -hmm. more insecurity. Why would we then invest and spend the political capital to resolve that mm -hmm. conflict? with those people in the periphery that we in any way disagree with or do not want to accommodate. That's mm -hmm. why we have the problem in the first place, right? So there's this tension between providing stability and improving security as a way of resolving the conflict, but then at the same time, disincentivizing the political elites that need to make those compromises force for finding a solution to the problem. Mm. That is a very brilliant response, and, and I think of um, in my own research as well. I've I've identified that dilemma, maybe not as sophisticated as you've uh, 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 said it. I've, I've looked at it in the context of um, maybe election and democracy. And good thing you mentioned in your first response how in Africa we have weak and diluted form of democracy that has not yielded 
much dividend to the people. So my criticism of liberal democracy has always been you know, focus on um, stabilization. So let's say, for instance, let's say there is, let's say there's a UN observer, let's say it's an election, and let's say there's widespread uh, election malpractices. You could okay, we know this happened, but you know, we'll just have to go with this to make sure there's stability rather than, you know, altering the, the status quo. So, so, but if we look at that and say how peace operation, like you rightly said, can inadvertently from what I'm gathering, disincentivize or create a situation whereby the political elites in these places are not looking for solution. So can, what is the scope of peace operation then? And how can you, what is the lesson in the last, let's say 20, 30 years? Uh, can we compare some peace operations that uh, have produced a different outcome from other peace operations? And then can we then start seeing, oh, how what can we do better or what what can we not do in this kind of like situations yes i mean if we just look at united nations peacekeeping uh it has been ex an extremely successful project in the sense that most un peacekeeping operations have helped to successfully you know support a process from of ending a conflict and 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 uh, starting a new phase in that society so we can think of Mozambique or Angola or Liberia or Sierra Leone or Burundi, just to mention some, some African cases. <coughs> Sorry, apologies. Where no. there were, you know, civil wars in the in the 80s and 90s that led to a, a formal ceasefire um, and peace agreement in some places, which United Nations peacekeeping operations then supported in during that transition period and resulted in in you know um, several decades of 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 stability and in and and, and introduction of, of multi-party democracy in most of these contexts namibia another example i would say what's essentially different from those examples or that that historic cases and some of the operations we have now, for instance, the, the, the UN operations in, in Mali and the DRC and Central African Republic, where there's a lot of frustration with those operations at the moment, is that those operations, uh, all three of those operations, lack that kind of political project, that kind of peace agreement or ceasefire that, that is, has been so critically in the success of these other operations in the past. And the lesson for yeah. us is that we, the primary focus should not be on stability or even on protection of civilians, but on investing in finding a political solution. So the main emphasis should not be the peace operation, but on, on the diplomatic effort needed to create a political project, right? And this is the work of... of diplomats of neighboring countries, of international organizations, of the African Union, of ECOWAS, of the United Nations, or all the different actors mm -hmm. nationally and internationally and regionally that need mm -hmm. to engage, put focus on, put pressure on the various key actors involved to find mm -hmm. and create that kind of political process that can, mm -hmm. that can resolve a conflict. And then to sustain that. And if there's such a process, one tool to help sustain that is peace operations. Peace operations mm. 
can help to provide a guarantee, a security guarantee, and other technical support for that process. But without that mm. process, the operations themselves cannot bring about transformation. But they can mm. be very effective, and we see that historically, in supporting such a process, because we know those processes are fragile, people don't trust each other, and so on. And then mm. in those cases, the deployment of a peace operation can really help to you know, bolster the evidence, uh, sorry, bolster the confidence of the parties. It makes it more difficult for the parties to um, uh, not implement the agreement that they, have, uh, that they have come to because there's a monitoring process. They know there's a cost. The Security Council is watching or the Peace and Security Council is watching. They're getting reports back from the mission. So it creates a, a process of support, but also of accountability to have these mm. peace operations in place in those contexts. So mm. the most important is the political project to focus on the diplomacy, to do the peacemaking, to create the political project, to sustain that. Then you can use a peace operation to support and build a confidence for that process. And then you can link that into the larger developmental and governance work that also needs to be part of that comprehensive approach. Mm. That is that is quite that's quite interesting framework. That's quite interesting. So I, I was going to ask if that comes if that um, describes your concept of uh, adaptive peace. But but before okay, maybe you could answer that. Is that is that what you mean by when you say adaptive peace, or how does that also uh, how do you distinguish yes. that from, yeah? Yes, uh, to, uh, yes, and the, the short answer is yes. But the but adaptive piece has uh, several other elements. So adaptive piece is a specific uh, concept or, or, or framework that I have developed based on, on applying complexity theory to peace and conflict studies or to, to conflict systems, to societies that are in conflict. And the question was, you know, we know, we always say that these, these situations are very complex. What do we actually mean when we say that they are complex, uh, mm -hmm. complex to resolve, right? And in, in my study for that, I discovered that there's actually a science that looks at how complex systems respond and, and evolve under pressure, right? This, this is a very interesting theoretical field because it, uh, it is applied across so many domains, you know, whether you are talking in the context of physics or in biology ecosystems or mm. in different forms of, of, of uh, human sciences, whether it's medical or psychological. But I, I apply it in the area of, of sociology and peace and political science, right? So, so I look especially at political systems, at societies and how societies uh, hmm. manage transitions from conflict to peace. And then especially as actors that want to support that process, whether we are local peace builders or whether we are international actors, whether we are a peace operation, what is appropriate, what's possible hmm. to do to support those kind of processes. Hmm. And the, hmm. I would say the two, without going into too much detail, the, the, the core things that would stand out from this approach is firstly, you know, a recognition that these situations are and these societies are indeed inherently complex, which means that the behavior is nonlinear, highly dynamic, uncertain, unpredictable. Mm. 
And that means that we, we cannot approach that situation with a predetermined solution. We cannot come mm. to that situation and say, oh, this is what has worked in South Africa, and therefore you must do ABC in the following order in Nigeria mm. or in Mozambique, right? It means mm. that in each of these situations are unique and so context-specific, and we need, to, we need mm. to find solutions that work for that particular context. And that mm. means that, that it has to be solutions for conflict, peace essentially, has to emerge mm. from the participation of the parties involved, the stakeholders involved. That's, of course, the local people, mm. the national people, but also their, their regional partners, their international partners. It is, mm. a, it is a process of engagement, of struggle, of finding solutions. Mm. And that process cannot be predetermined. It has to be emergent or adaptive. So that's where the adaptive piece comes in. In other words, we have to learn from doing. We have to try things. Then we mm. have to understand what is the effect of those things we've tried. And then we have to adapt mm. as we go on and say, okay, this hasn't worked. Let's do more of this. Oh, this looks promising. Let's try more of that. Mm. So it's a continuous mm. process of adaptation. And in the complexity mm. context, we talk about feedback, right? So based on our action, we get positive or negative feedback, and then we have to adapt to that. And this is a process of, of a self-organized process. And in other words, it's not something that, you know, a few leaders or the UN or somebody can impose and lead. It has to be a mm. process where everybody is involved and we all learn from mm. each other and we all participate in the process. That's the way that mm. social institutions are developed over time that can then mm. over time develop the resilience and the capacity to manage their own peace. It's not something you can do overnight. It's not something you can do by just adapting somebody else's model. It's something mm. you have to develop yourself over time. So in short, that's, that's you know, some of the key elements of adaptive peace. Okay, that, that, that sounds quite interesting. But, but you've mentioned there, uh, like a multi-actor, multi-stakeholder approach, uh, one that no overarching institution would have to lead but then when when it, when you were answering the other question you, you did uh, particularly identify the un peacekeeping operations as extremely successful uh, but we've seen some of these missions in africa where either is a partnership peacekeeping between the au and the un or whether it's like in the multinational joint task force whether it's, it's just by um you know the regional uh countries forming armies together or whether in, in whether it's sodok what is South Africa leading in, in places like, like Mozambique? What, what do you think it's, um, uh, in terms of this partnership, do you think this should be the way forward? Or do you think uh, that Africa, for instance, should be leading its own, uh, its own, because I, I know they have this um, 2063 vision where, you know, the, the aspiration is to is to be able to deal with its own security or its own you know, prosperity. Mm -hmm. So, but what do you see moving forward in terms of these partnerships or this this? I, um, I, would, I would say African that we, we focus. Are mm. I would say that on, we are on. already at a point where Africa is leading our own peace process. Uh, there's not one I can mm. one process I can think of. Um, 
where um, the African Union or regional economic communities or key countries in the region are not playing a, a decisive role in resolving those conflicts. That doesn't exclude partnerships or relations with others. So partnerships are, are very important. And you've mentioned, you know, all the a number of operations and each of them slightly different, each of them unique, a unique partnership, a unique coming together of, of various stakeholders that have a stake in, in those conflicts. And when I say in the adaptive peace context that, you know, there's not one particular institution that leads all of this, uh, this is what you can, uh, you know, we can say the, the SADC mission in Mozambique or, or the UN mission in Mali, that does not suggest in any way that those operations are somehow the leading entity in resolving mm. conflict in those countries. As I've explained before, they are playing a small contributing role to a much larger process where at a particular mm. moment in time, they are providing some, some stability or security. But of course, mm. the, the, the most important actors in all of these situations are the people, the key political actors in those countries themselves, the government of the day, mm. the, the various mm. other factors and elites that are involved in resolving those conflicts. And then other international actors that are, that are, are playing a role in, in, in trying to bring about change. But none mm. of those actors have enough power or or agency to control that situation on their own. Right? Mm. It's, it's, a, it's an interaction and a complex system where each actor tries to influence the situation, but has to do so in cooperation with many others. And then there are others pushing back and it's a constant process of adaptation and change and competition and cooperation. Um, mm. But it's not as if any one of those actors, whether it's the United Nations or the African Union or the government of Mozambique, uh, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the government of Mozambique, you know, should have the sovereignty to to make the final decision. But of course, hmm. they are, uh, are an actor in a globalized world where their hmm. agency is also limited, even although they may have the, the sovereign power to to make those decisions. They can only do that if they have the support of the people and if the if if uh, various international actors and regional actors and so on, um, you know, are supportive of their process and uh, the process mm. that they've embarked upon. So um, mm. so that is the kind of complex interplay that I'm trying to to share with you and that I'm trying to capture in this um, complex adaptive system approach of adaptive peace. Okay, brilliant. But before I come to the last question, I, I wanted to um, ask you because we sometimes we use concepts without uh, people use concepts in in a synonymous way without drawing, you know, distinctions. If they if there are distinctions, are, are there any distinctions between like, for instance, peacekeeping, peace building, and its other variants? What 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 are there? What implications do they have if there are distinctions? So these concepts are, of course, are very useful for people working in that field to communicate with each other, to explain, uh, you know, different dimensions or aspects of, of a larger problem. So the classical understanding of these concepts are that, you know, when we're dealing with the situations, let's say uh, the situation, the conflict that we see currently in, in Sudan, to, to use an African example, 
Mm. Um, we would say that the what we first should try to do as local, national, regional, international actors is to try and prevent that conflict in the first place, right? So we talk about mm. preventive diplomacy or conflict prevention. These could mm. be actions that we take to, to when we see very either early signs of things that can contribute to a conflict eventually, like inequality, mm. exclusion, mm. or human rights mm. abuses, or hate speech. These could all be signs mm. leading to a conflict, and then to respond to that through prevention. If, mm. uh, if the situation continues to worsen, we then talk about peacemaking. So peacemaking are efforts typically by diplomats or peacemakers or, or, or mediators from the local mm. to the international level that try to bring the parties to a conflict together to, okay. to either have a ceasefire or a peace agreement, etc. And then mm. once you have an agreement or a ceasefire in place, that's where you can use a peacekeeping operation. So a peacekeeping operation is typically an operation that, mm. like a United Nations peacekeeping operation that helps to implement a ceasefire or a peace agreement. We also talk about peace enforcement, mm. and that is a different type of operation, like, for instance, the SADC mission in Mozambique or the Multinational Joint Task Force in the Lake Chart Basin. Those would be enforcement operations in the sense that they are acting against an aggressor, against an armed group to mm. try and bring stability in, in that way. And then peace mm. building is, in the classical sense, something that comes after you've achieved some form of, uh, uh, you know, an end to the conflict, then you build the peace. But today's mm. understanding of peace building is, is much more cross-cutting than that. So peace building today, in a sense, is used much more as an overarching concept, which can include elements of prevention um, and elements of, of, of recovery and reconstruction, uh, mediation, dialogue, uh, transitional justice, security sector reform. So, so maybe it's the most overarching concept that it, that refers to very many different actions we can take to try and sustain peace. In other words, to prevent to 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 whatever level of peace that we have, to build it, to make hmm. it stronger, to prevent that from relapsing into violent conflict through a variety of of actions. So that would be a maybe a, a way of describing some of the, how these terminologies are, are used. Okay, yes, interesting. So, so if I come to the last question, um, you've also writ written about, you know, that transition to sustainable peace, uh, moving away from that to sustainable. So how would you see uh, overall looking at Africa, how do we move from this peace building to obtaining sustainable peace in Africa? Mm. Sustainable means that we sustain it ourselves, right? And we see that those societies that are peaceful, and peace is not something you achieve and then you can pack up and go home, right? It's it's not like a soccer game that you, at the end of there's a whistle that blows and then you've won the match and you can go home and celebrate. Yeah. Peace never ends. The work for peace never ends. And we can see that even in very well-developed societies that have been peaceful for decades or centuries that are, are now backsliding. We know historically all empires, you know, uh, come to an end at some point. So mm -hmm. 
But if we look at those societies that are able to sustain their own peace, uh, an example in South Africa would uh, in southern in, in Africa would be, for instance, Mauritius or Botswana mm. would be would be exemplary mm. examples of countries that are able to sustain the peace. Tanzania is doing very well. And what you see mm. in these societies is that they are institutions that are proactively working towards tolerance um, that resolve conflicts before they become, um, um, you know, violent. Uh, they are mm. institutions that are engaged in ensuring that different identity groups, whether they are religious groups or language groups or so on, uh, you know, cooperate uh, together, mm. create social cohesion, create social resilience. So you need to have an active engagement in sustaining your society by investing in social cohesion, by investing in resilience, and, and have your own institutions that are actively doing that, both governmental institutions, but also just in our ordinary society, whether it's the local church or mosque or sports club or whatever it may be, mm. must all contribute to that, that overarching societal value of promoting tolerance, promoting collaboration, resolving conflicts peacefully. Uh, of course, mm. part of that then is also your larger society, which implies some form of uh, economic sustainability. Um, we know that societies that are highly unequal, uh, where there's a huge division between rich and poor, are typically societies that, that, that experience conflict. So these are all the kind of things that we need to work against and work towards in order to to, to find sustainable, self-sustained societies in which peace is self-sustained. Oh, amazing, amazing. Uh, Shadrach, it's, it's um, listen, this is very rich and very um, uh, deep insight into peace operation. And like Riley mentioned, uh, peacekeeping or peace operations or whatever terminology we choose to, forms a part of a framework that has to uh, not be the first response. It has to be one that comes after a political project has been identified and after we've had like a diplomatic uh, response and then that creates the opportunity for, for peace operation. And then we have to then start thinking in the longer term uh, how to sustain that peace by addressing, like Wright mentioned, the structural approach, uh, structural conditions, and also using institutions, using some of the uh, maybe communities, sports communities, or you know, churches, or this whatever instruments we have to to be able to to. And then also, uh, I'm happy that you mentioned the economic approach that has to go hand in hand. Also addressing that, creating, removing inequalities and all that. I really appreciate your time, and I appreciate you sharing your deep insight in, on this subject. Uh, thank you very very much. Thank I'm you. Really thank you very much, Michael. Nice That's talking to you and and. Uh... Thank you very much and good luck with your success of your podcast as well. You're welcome. Thank you, Cedric. Have a great Thank day. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, thank you viewers very much for tuning in to this uh, interesting episode. Uh, we're grateful to have um, Professor Shedrick De Corning to share his uh, insightful 
um, thoughts and views on um, peacekeeping in, in Africa. Uh, stay tuned uh, for the next episode. Thanks and, and goodbye.